to the Workforce Show and the Executive Human Capital Series. This program focuses on big data analytics and its importance to organizational decision-making. The guest is Dr. Michael Hausman, who is the Chief Analytics Officer for Evolve, and the conversation is moderated by Kim Clark-Paskey's Managing Partner of Strategic Organization Solutions in Virginia. And we're talking about big data, and we are fortunate to have Michael Hausman here with us from Evolve, and Evolve is a big data corporation in San Francisco, and their team works to make sure that organizations can use big data and predictive analytics to improve workforce quality, productivity, and profitability by connecting qualified employees with employers and who can foster more effective practices through the employee life cycle. So basically using all the data that's collected to make the organization solve workforce problems and issues and help the C-suite be more effective. With that, I will introduce Michael. Michael, I'm glad to have you here today. Thanks for having me. And um, Michael's a Ph.D., and he's a chief analytics officer at Evolve. And uh, basically I love the fact that you are really – you have these two questions that you like to pose. What keeps people on the job longer? and what allows them to perform better. And I think we're all interested either as the employee or the employer in uh, knowing how to uh, solve those, to answer those two questions. Um, And in your 10 years of experience, you've utilized data and analytics to generate insights and work directly with stakeholders to interpret and put findings in practice. And you've worked for a number of large um, contract research organizations, including Rand Corporation, the Urban Institute, and the Lewin Group. And uh, you have uh, provided information and consult to PricewaterhouseCoopers and uh, helped develop a SaaS platform for Pascal Metrics Incorporated. Um, in addition, he has worked um, that's been published in a variety of peer-reviewed journals and has been a contributor to uh, large media outlets such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and The Atlantic. And uh, Michael received his AM and PhD in Applied Economics and Managerial Science from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and his AB from Harvard University. Mm-hmm. So we are very pleased to have you here with us today to uh, kick off this discussion on uh, on big data and predictive analytics and what that means in the in the world of HR and in the world of, of people management. I like to think of it a little bigger than HR because it's not only what the HR function can do, but it's how can we make sure that we're putting the right people in the right places throughout the organization. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Absolutely. That's great. Why don't we just start with a really basic conversation around what is big data? If you can help uh, explain to folks what does that mean and and perhaps what are the implications to those in the HR department? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there, there are a number of definitions. Big data is thrown around a lot. As, as in sort of a lot of different ways as far as, you know, what it is and what it means. Um, and w- the way we like to think of it is in terms of volume, velocity, and variety. Uh, and so there are others who have talked about it in the same way, but just volume, so as the name implies, big data means that there's a lot of it, that traditional ways of warehousing this data and analyzing it simply aren't sufficient. And that's why technologies like Hadoop and MapReduce have emerged. Uh, in terms of variety, 
it's the combination of data streams from a variety of different sources that we've never really seen before. So when we're thinking about, you know, human resource and people management, we're combining data from, you know, typical um, um, HR attrition feeds, but we're combining that with performance data as well. We're combining that with data on wages and overtime, uh, with data on supervisors and a variety of different other data sources. And then finally, in terms of velocity, what we're finding now is that data is arriving and being generated at an even quicker rate than ever before. So, you know, the, one of the stats that I like to quote is that um, every four days, the, uh, you know, the amount of data that's produced is essentially equivalent to the first 10 years of the existence of the Internet. So this growth is occurring at an exponential rate, and it's those three Vs, as we term it, that, that really separates big data from, you know, traditional data and empirics that, that we've seen in the past. So I'm guessing this is not something that you can do on your spreadsheet. Yep. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I think we encourage, you know, clients and, and folks that we engage with to, to start small. And so to that extent, you know, spreadsheets are certainly a good start. But, yeah, what we found is that to really leverage the power of the data that, you know, clients of ours are, are already producing, what you do need is, is more in, sort of enhanced capabilities. So you need tools that can analyze that data. You need, you know, individuals who have been trained in the proper methods to be able to analyze the data. Uh, and, and, again, the methodologies need to be sound. So we can't just be creating bar charts and, and line graphs, but we need to be doing advanced regression techniques and, and so on and so forth. So are you finding that the people that you're working with, and this is probably a deeper dive than we were going to, but it's a, um, on this particular section, but it just made me think a little bit, are the folks who are having to work with the analytics that are coming out of either the systems or the tools or just being able to have access to so much data, are, are those HRIS um, folks, are they able to keep pace or do you need a different type of analytical skill to be um, working in this, in this function now? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, and, and where we think the industry is moving is towards what we're calling the democratization of big data. So typically, big data has been the domain of, you know, analysts, econometricians, statisticians, people trained not unlike myself, uh, who have, you know, years of experience analyzing and interpreting this data. But, you know, where we think Evolve fits, among other vendors, of course, is that they're now helping everyone get access to insight from big data. And so our view is that, you know, we, we almost call it kind of tongue-in-cheek, like a PhD in a box. But the idea is that when we work with a client, and our clients are typically large, um, large employers with very large hourly uh, workforces, we, we tell them you, you don't need to have, um, you know, an econometrician or a PhD on staff to be able to interpret the results that we're generating. We want to make this available to recruiters and hiring managers. We want it to be intuitive and easy to use for uh, operations people on their front lines. Uh, you know, typically the folks that we work with tend to be in leadership roles, but the key is that we don't want them to need to have advanced statistics training. The idea is everyone should be able to access this insight and take action on it. So basically what you're saying is that there's all this amazing data that you can pull from lots of different sources in the organization, and you're putting some type of a dashboard on top of it that people can out, 
I'm being very simplistic now, but almost ask a question and it can come back and tell you, you know, how is how are you performing against this particular measure that you think is important for your company? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a piece of it, um, and I, I totally agree with your point, which is. People, companies often worry, we don't think we're generating the data that we need to be able to do this. And, and our answer is invariably, you are. You just don't realize you have that data in your possession. But, you know, what we think once we've, we've dug in and we've, you know, shared data and we figured out what they have under the hood is that this, this needs to go beyond dashboards and business intelligent platforms. So let, let me give you an example. You know, most of the clients we've talked to, they have those pretty dashboards that have the odometer readings and they're red, yellow, and green, and they tell you how you compare to your peers. Um, and, and it'll show you, you know, how's your attrition, how's your performance as compared to industry benchmarks. That's, that's certainly helpful, but we want to move past the, the how are we doing to, to the why. And, and where we really see that occurring is when you dig in and you're able to do things like what we call kind of, it's called variance decomposition, but it's a fancy way of saying, let's dig in and figure out where are the low-hanging fruit. If my attrition is too high, what are the predictive and causal factors that are making it so high? And so, as an example, we've, we've dug down with a few of our clients, and we found in a number of cases they had high attrition, and it's because they had a population of supervisors, particularly in the bottom tier, that were struggling to keep their employees. They, they just essentially weren't um, doing a great job at retaining their employees and getting the most out of their employees. And so when you dig in, now you say, okay, I understand where to be digging, and that, that's when you can start to think about, well, what can we do to up-level these people, to hire the right profile, to train them properly? How can we make our managers even more effective? Um, so. Yeah, that's that's kind of one of our, or at least my my big, you know, issues and pet peeves is is making sure people are clear. It's it's not just you know a dashboard. It's it's peering under that hood and trying to understand what are the knobs and levers that we can pull uh, and dial up or down in order to improve our outcomes. That's kind of the beauty of having all of that information in it in a more readily available format that you aren't spending all the time generating the data. You're actually able to ask the questions. Yeah, and then it, dig it, deeper to be able to solve the problems that you didn't even know were there potentially before. Absolutely. You know, and, and there are companies that do this, but it requires a big research project in many cases and analysts, and they have to do data integration. What we're trying to do that is make it so that it's done at the touch of a button, that you can simulate different outcomes, you know, work with the platform. It suggests different scenarios, and then you choose the one that is, that's most palatable. So, you know, again, another way of thinking of it is is really – data-driven decision-making for the workforce so that we're not using guesswork and gut intuition that, quite frankly, we've been using for a very long time. That's great. Um, specific practical applications, um, do you find it um, better or more appropriate in certain parts of the organization than others to look at, say, a Salesforce performance or manufacturing performance versus what the uh, accounting function might do, say? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, we think, well, first off, the power in big data is, is partially because of the volume. And so we, we do think that there is kind of a minimum scale that you need, or potentially combining companies, you can get a network that will give mm -hmm. you that minimum sample size. But um, you do need an organization or part of the organization that's big enough with enough people performing something close to the same task that we can then analyze what are the drivers of their performance. So 
you know, unfortunately with, you know, small startups or, you know, small right. companies that are 10 or 15 large, it's, it's hard to leverage the power of big data in those cases. Um, I'd say beyond that, you want to be focusing on roles and organizations where the frontline workforce really has a big impact on the bottom line and their P&L. So we find that essentially we've, we've had a very effective um, uh, experience in, in service type of industry. So in call centers, retail, fast casual dining, um, hospitality, you know, those are areas where um, your workforce can really drive a lot of the brand recognition and reputation, um, things like customer satisfactions for tele- telecommunications companies. You know, people ultimately choose a telecom based in part on that customer experience. And so for organizations that are really trying to maximize that experience and provide the very best service, you know, that's where we find these methods are most effective. Um, I'd say there's probably less of an opportunity in something like uh, manufacturing where it's not as apparent how those people working on the front line are really going to impact um, the, the, the level of quality and service that someone gets, um, though it's certainly not taking it off the table. Um, so, yeah, I think th- those two co- when we see the combination of those two things, which is a, a large workforce and that workforce is engaged in activities that really reflect, reflect on the brand, um, that's, that's kind of the sweet spot. Well, that's great. That is a fabulous segue into kind of the next section in, in, in talking about how do you manage data and using analytics effectively to really, you know, do what the organization is there to do, which is either generate revenue or, you know, achieve its mission. We have a lot of, you know, nonprofits in the region and folks that are not necessarily striving only for dollar results. Some, some are mission results, but at the end of the day, you know, they're looking at things like talent identification, performance management, and succession planning. And it seems like for those organizations that are large enough, getting a picture of who you want, you know, to be, um, you know, build, putting into your pipeline, you know, then figuring out how you can manage them and then figuring out who's going to be successful in different roles could be very um, advantageous to, to organizations as they, uh, as they move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, w- what you just said is, is exactly what we, you know, tell folks that we engage with, clients, so on and so forth. There are, there are essentially three st- phases of the employee life cycle. There's uh, first hiring, right, selection. Mm-hmm. Then there's the second phase, which is training and development. And then there's a third stage, which is uh, promotion, plateau, and separation. Uh, and, and ultimately, what we're trying to do is take what was typically done via that guesswork and gut intuition on the part of recruiters, hiring managers, supervisors, and we try to inject data into that decision-making process. Uh, so as an example, we can just start with the selection process, which is a, a problem many companies often you know, struggle with, which is who do we bring in? What's the raw talent that we think is going to best suit this organization and provide a good experience, stay around for long periods of time, be engaged? And what we found, again, is that they typically entrust that decision to the recruiter, and recruiters have a number of years of experience, but what we found is that Recruiters can do an even better job when you supplement them with more information about the quality of the hire. And so in that case, we'll gather information at the point of application and we'll ask someone um, a set of questions via an an online assessment that may be 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, But by virtue of their answers to those questions, they give us a really good snapshot as to the knowledge, skills, and abilities they bring to this role. And when we're able to then render a score based on their responses, we found that recruiters that take that score into account, in addition to their own judgment, 
they do a better job at hiring the right people for these roles. Uh, and actually, we, you know, I'll take an opportunity to plug some of the research we've done with, with research partners of ours that have essentially borne those results out. So we work with academic institutions like University of Toronto and Wharton um, and researchers at Yale, and they've studied these phenomena and they find that, that in fact, recruiters do uh, practice more effectively when they have that additional information. And so that's just applying it to the hiring decision, but like I said, we're, we're looking beyond that point and we're thinking about what, what allows people to be trained most effectively, how can we supervise them well, what are the, the wages that allow them to perform well, how much overtime is appropriate. Uh, all of those questions factor into you know, what makes someone a, an effective or an ineffective employee. And so we're constantly mining that data and trying to figure out how we can put people in the best possible position to achieve their potential. From a practical perspective in that um, you talked about you know, 30, to 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe an hour to fill out that application up front, do you find that the audience that you're targeting um, pushes back on participating in that data collection effort, either from a privacy reason or from a they think that that's not something that they want to do as part of the hiring process? Yeah, it, it, it does happen. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we have a number of clients of ours that want a relatively frictionless application process and in a world where you can, you know, essentially click the um, apply via one click through um, career builder for a job, you know, there are people who aren't as inclined to go through this assessment. But I will say on the, on the other side of that, that, what we offer at the very start of the application is called a, it's called a realistic job preview, where as opposed to sugarcoating the realities of the job, we give them a very um, fact-based depiction of what the job will entail, good, the bad, and the ugly. And what we found is that when you do that and you're realistic and, and manage expectations up front, you do have people that click out of the application early on. But you know, guess what? We find you didn't want them people, anyway. <laughs> yeah, those, those people probably weren't a great fit for the role, and it's, it's for the best that, you know, the best judge of whether someone's a good fit for a role is themselves. And so we don't want someone to go through the app, you know, we don't want someone to go through an application, find out what the job is like, stick in there, and then leave on day five, right? That's, that's, a, that's a loss for the company and for the employee. So that, that opt-out is, is not, you know, a bad thing if it's someone making the decision, this, this role isn't right for me, or I'm not invested enough, or I don't care about it enough. So how then would you slip from the identification of them up front to the performance management? Is there data that you're collecting on an ongoing basis? Does this mean that the manager, God forbid, has to fill out a performance assessment at more than once at the end of the year? And how, how do you go about collecting the data, or is it data that they are contributing to that they don't even know that they're um, feeding into some system throughout the course of their um, performance cycle? Yeah, well, I will tell you, Kim, that uh, the good news for you and for many people is that, you know, performance reviews are something we rarely take into account when we're doing our calibration of the algorithms. Uh, yeah. And part of this is because I'm an economist, I'm naturally skeptical of survey data, particularly data like performance reviews, where I think there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into it. So what we do is we're capturing performance data that's generated by the employer often on every day of the employee's um, tenure there. So, for example, if there's a time and attendance system in place, we know when you're clocking in and out and when you're showing up on time and when you're showing up late. Um, same for 
customer satisfaction, um, if you're a retail worker or if you're a call center worker, um, we know the level of service that you're providing people that you interact with with a high level of precision. So the good news is it doesn't impose any additional onerous um, data, you know, transcribing or data entry. At the end of the day, we're able to work with just that data that our clients already collect. That's and, you know, we think, A, that, that lowers the, bar, the barriers to, to engage with, with someone like us, but, but also we think it's a more objective assessment of how someone's doing on the job as opposed to um, performance reviews. So From an operational perspective, it's really what the organization has hired them to do, and you're able to give them really true feedback on the performance that the organization needs, not just on the touchy-feely things about whether or not they, you know, completed their, their goals. Yep, that, that's exactly right. At the end of the day, you know, our clients care about the bottom line, and to the extent that productivity metrics and customer experience metrics impact that, that's, that's what they want to be measuring and improving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in terms of predictive analytics, for is, for, is the person ready to move now to the next job? You know, do they have the capabilities to move maybe out of one occupational role to another? Is that something that you're monitoring or that, you know, you, the use of big data in a broader sense is able to help organizations determine who are the people who um, they've kind of got in the pipeline or people who are demonstrating potential or high performance so that they can keep an eye on those people and make sure they don't run out the door? Yeah, it's more the second point that you made, which is the algorithms are able to identify relatively early who's likely to be a high performer that that will have a higher likelihood of being promoted into a managerial or supervisory role. And, um, you know, we we found via our own data that those recommendations we give for hiring, those people that, that we think are the best hires also are the best, you know, performers, and they tend to be promoted much more frequently than um, counterparts that, that struggle with the online assessment. Um, so, you know, what we say is that is we're, we're able to identify that raw talent really early on in the process, flag those individuals, and then, of course, the decision as to when it's time to promote someone or, um, or you know, or, or, or separate them is something that, of course, is left in the hands of, of the managers themselves, and that's not, you know, something the, the algorithms are designed to do. Um, the other thing is, and I think this is really interesting, this is the flip side of what you just said. You know, we're doing some research right now that's studying toxic employees. So what we have identified are people that, by virtue of the reason that they're terminated, we find that 3, 3 to 5% of all employees are terminated for reasons that we think are um, policy violations, so uh, fraud, um, sexual harassment, alcohol and drug abuse. Um, we're finding that these people impact the productivity of their co-workers. And we've also found now that the, um, the online assessment is very effective at identifying those people that are likely to essentially wreak havoc in the workplace. So, you know, there's you know, we like to say that it's, it's identifying the best people that you're going to likely make supervisors, but also helping folks stay away from the worst that, that can really drag down performance of everyone they, uh, they work with. Oh, and I think we can all uh, cite examples of organizations that have kept some of those people on for the longest time thinking they could either rehabilitate them or that they were really good at sales or they were really good at one thing, and they stayed in the organization and really deteriorated the you know, excellence that they could have had if they had dealt with that you know, situation a lot earlier. Yeah, I, we say it again. Everyone's worked with with one of these people at some point, and they know 
how caustic it can be to that workplace environment. And so it's, 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 it's really great when you can, you know, prevent them from being hired in the first place as opposed to waiting for, for bad things to happen. And, well, in, in that, um, that vein, and we talked briefly the other day about, um, you know, the perspective of data being blind and, you know, the discrimination factor and the considerations for things. And so by just being able to look at the data and not, you know, specifically asking other questions or making stereotype judgments, you're able to make better decisions that don't have that kind of discriminatory component to them, correct? Yep, absolutely. You know, one of the things I like to say is that, um, you know, people get a little bit nervous about this notion of, of robot recruiters, which was one of the headlines in The Economist. What I tell people is that robots are colorblind. So, you know, in essence, we know from a long line of research that recruiters tend to have what's called a like-me bias. They tend to hire people that are like themselves, be it male or female, white or minority, that we all have these biases whether we acknowledge them or not. And the good news is that, you know, when you log into that terminal, the, the algorithms don't know your racial background, your gender, your age, or anything like that. And, and I should point out, on top of that, that when we're tweaking those algorithms, we do a lot of, we spend a lot of time analyzing the data to ensure that there's no, what's called disparate impact. So we make doubly sure that by virtue of the scores that are, that are handed out by the assessment, that none of them discriminate against any protected classes. So there's that double layer of protection. And that's kind of what I tell people when um, they get a little bit nervous about this notion of uh, computer determining if they get a job. What I tell them is that, you know, this, at the end of the day, it's going to decide whether you're a good fit based on your merits. And, and isn't that something that we all really want at the end of the day? Right, right. Um, as we move into the last section of, of the conversation around kind of trends and best practices, uh, are there things that, you know, from the employer perspective that they should be thinking about or, or ways that the employer or the employee, things that they should be nervous about or not be nervous about or be aware of that organizations are actually capturing certain types of data. And so what does that mean about their social profile or their um, the way that they answer questions in these types of scenarios, not to tell them to you know, pick a particular answer, but, you know, what are the, you know, the trends or the things that you're seeing that uh, might be beneficial for the, for employees to know or for employers to know about what, what the implications to potential employees would be? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are two sides of it. One is on the employer side, if they're thinking about going down this path, you know, we have, we have essentially a code of ethics here, which is, you know, we only work with data that's voluntarily supplied. Um, so we're not scraping and looking for hidden information. We don't buy or sell any data. You know, we think that's very important. Um, you need to make sure that what data is captured is protected in the appropriate way, and so making sure that you have firewalls in place to ensure that there aren't going to be any data breaches, that none of the data is identifiable. Um, and so we actually go out of our way not to capture identifiable employee characteristics because, quite frankly, we don't want to know the Social Security number, right. phone number, addresses of any of the people that are in our database. So on the employer side, there, there are a number of security checks that you, you should probably follow just to make sure that whoever you're working with is, is capturing the data in the right way and storing it in the right way. Um, on the employee side, you know, I would say at the end of the day, supplying, you know, we design the assessment in a way that we call it um, opaque. It's not a transparent assessment, at least insofar as we can control that. So trying to gain the assessment 
uh, is actually something we're able to identify and, and kind of eliminate the impact of. So, so my recommendation for employees is, quite frankly, to, to do their best on the test, to answer, answer honestly, um, because, you know, there are, there are ways of identifying when people are trying to gain the assessment. Um, and, and that's kind of my, my best advice for employers and employees. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, that, that kind of covers it. Okay. Are there any kind of helpful hints or things that you would share with somebody if they were trying to, you know, deploy a big data strategy, kind of the three things that they need to be aware of if you were going to get started, especially if you have lots of data all over the place, but it's not necessarily, you know, essentially housed now. Do you need a tool? Can you start to, is it better to start collecting your thoughts about what you want to measure first? How would, how would you go about it? What are the kind of key things that an organization needs to be thinking about? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, I would say just to start, you know, just taking stock of the data that you actually have, and often it's in different locations, so it doesn't all reside within HR. So that means you're going to have to work cross-disciplinary and cross-departments. Uh, but taking stock of that data and starting small is, is really key. So once you've figured out what data streams you have, identifying a single question that you could potentially answer through the use of this data and not trying to boil the ocean. Uh, we see, you know, a lot of these projects fail uh, independent of whether they engage evolve just because people are trying to do too much and they design a massive initiative and they, they buy all these tools and they bring these analysts on board before they even really know what data they have and what questions are going to help them uh, improve the bottom line. So, you know, just starting small, uh, small chunking things. And then in terms of, you know, if we find that there's an organization that does decide to engage with, with a vendor, um, you know, there are th certain things you want to be on the lookout for. One of the big ones and where we see the industry is heading is, is you want to be looking forward and not backward. And, and what I mean by that is that um, there are, as I mentioned, a lot of dashboards out there that will tell you, you know, how you've done in the past and how that performance compares to relevant peers or industry standard. Where, where the industry is moving is towards predictive analytics. So not just saying how have we done in the past, but if we make certain changes to the composition of our workforce or our supervisors or overtime policies or shifts, what are the likely impacts that's going to have on performance in the future? Uh, we found, quite frankly, that there are relatively few vendors out there and relatively few companies that are thinking in a forward-looking way like that. And that's, that's really where we think things are headed. And so that's, you know, if, if you get to that level of sophistication where you've moved beyond spreadsheets and you're able to use advanced models, then you want to use those, you want to leverage those models to be doing that, that forward-looking predictive analysis. So it's really the what-if what if analysis exponential or to that, some special squared power, if you will. That, that's exactly it. The, the only constant is change. So if you're mm -hmm. trying to model performance in the past, you know, you'll find that your competitive environment is going to change in six months. You need to be able to adapt, and, and that's, that's where the what-if analysis really comes in handy. Well, it sounds to me like this is a way that, um, you know, from a, from a functional perspective, that the HR departments could actually start to raise their hands a bit 
and, um, you know, be more in align with the strategic direction and working with the CFOs and with the business development folks as they're trying to figure out where the organization is going to be able to say, hey, you know, we now have tools and we have thinking and we have methodologies that can help you model those things to let you know if you want to go, you know, in this direction, how fast will it take us, you know, organizationally to catch up from a people perspective and what will we need to make, what, you know, how come fast can we build that capability, what do we need to do to buy additional capability, et cetera. Is that a way that um, you see big data being used uh, in, the, in the workforce arena? Uh, absolutely. I couldn't have put it better myself. I think at the end of the day, in many ways, HR had not been viewed as a competitive differentiator. And so they've been left out of the conversation. But what we're finding now with the emergence of people analytics uh, along these lines is that this is leveling the playing field, that now those HR executives are being invited to be a part of this conversation, which is how we're going to use big data in order to get the best performance that we can out of this company and, and, and help the bottom line. So we, we found that these big data initiatives really cut across departments and across turfs and ultimately level the playing field and allow everyone to participate in this conversation. So to that extent, you know, we love it because it empowers those executives to, to really kind of try to push the, the envelope and to be doing creative and innovative things um, with their people. So, I, again, I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. That's great. And I saw something this morning from uh, Jack Welsh. He was once again kind of out there, to, you know, ta- you know re- touting, you know, how important that uh, people capability in organizations are, especially for those who do a lot of service type of work and making sure that, you know, HR has the seat at the table, but they're going to that table with the information and being able to be a partner to the business and working on the business and kind of in the business, but not, you know, in the periphery. And I think this is a, a fabulous tool that can, uh, can really um, help accelerate uh, the capabilities in that human capital arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I totally agree. At the end of the day, one of the biggest assets you have are your people, right? They're especially in frontline roles. They're on the front line. They're representing your brand. A good experience will bring someone back with their friends. A bad experience will drive someone away and all their Twitter followers in this right. day and age. So. Right. It's so key to make sure that those people that are representing your brand are at the highest possible caliber. And, and again, we're, you know, we're seeing the Jack Welches of the world now come around and realize that, and it's, it's an exciting time to be in this space. That's great. Well, Michael, I really appreciate the time that you've shared with us today and uh, the conversation. I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting for folks in anybody in the people arena and, quite frankly, anybody in the business arena to see how we can now, you know, kind of take all sorts of information and use it to uh, get one more level of competitiveness within the organizations and certainly um, help organizations, you know, get, get results and be better, faster, um, and responsive to their organizations. And, and thinking about also how this helps them with their reputation as we move into this new economy, uh, we know that uh, it's not only about just the, the financial um, results, but it's also about that reputation that organizations have um, that is, you know, just as important to uh, keeping them out there in the front line. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Cynthia Gurn, the executive producer of The Workforce Show. For additional programs on human capital topics, please visit soundcloud.com forward slash The Workforce Show. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter and receive additional information about upcoming programs. Thank you.